So as I said at the start of the service, we are going to be spending uh, some time looking at our last piece of armor in the armor of God, this kind of ancient image that comes to us that bears within it, I think, some very modern and relevant wisdom for how we live today. But I think it's only right that before we dive into God's word, we allow him to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me? Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed gathered us together in this place that we might learn from you, that we might gain wisdom from your word and understand the love that you have from, uh, for us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come before that word, that you would give us hearts and minds to receive it. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody. And I thought, uh, seeing as how it is Valentine's Day, I'd give you guys a little uh, window into my personal life. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to make this weird. Just wanted to share a little bit about how I first met my wife. Uh, Jenny and I met in college, and we started dating in May of 2005. But here's the secret. Uh, we didn't actually like each other when we first met one another. Uh, we had met uh, long before we had started dating. And uh, we had certain impressions about each other that were kind of tough to get over. Uh, for example, uh, when I first met Jenny, I, I encountered a woman with very, very strong opinions who I thought was a man-hating feminazi. Uh, now, I learned over the years that she does have strong opinions, but none of the rest of that stuff is true. Uh, and when she looked at me, what she thought is that I was a religious studies know-it-all who liked to be at the center of attention and stand on stage. There may be something to that. But we had these impressions uh, about one another, uh, impressions that were honestly a little challenging to get over, and yet gradually over time, some affections started to grow. Gradually over time, we started to see one another in a different Light. And, and that's the, th the interesting thing about matters of the heart. Matters of the heart are important. They go deep. In many ways, they are at times unsearchable, and yet they require our attention because the heart is a powerful thing. I mean, uh, we like to believe, I think, in our modern American 21st century context that when it comes to head versus heart, that we are people who are primarily defined by our heads. Uh, we live in our, we would say, a rational uh, society. We're rational people, and we think that the center of who we are is, is up here in the decisions that we make, the choices that we have, the willpower uh, that we show. But, but I think that there's something really important to recognize because ancient people didn't actually view the mind and the heart in the, quite the same way. They said that, well, yes, the mind is important. Logic is important. Being rational is important. They recognized that there were certain things that ultimately steered the head. They recognized that uh, the head was actually dictated by what was in the heart. Even the ancient Greeks, those people who founded schools of philosophy, understood that the center of the human person actually wasn't the head. It was the heart because it was in the heart that, that you found all a person's desires. It was their desires that drove them. It was their desires that defined them and shaped them. And as a result, the heart could often hold powerful sway over the trajectory of our lives, over what we prioritize, even over what we think. 
I appreciate how Tim Keller puts this. He says, what the heart finds desirable, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. Let me say that again. What the heart finds desirable, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. What he's saying there is he's really affirming what what the ancients always believed, that the heart was the very center of the human person. That it reshaped everything. And this is important for us to recapture, I think, today, because there are many people who say that they're not uh, driven by the whims of their hearts, that that, that they're rational people. They make uh, decisions in line with what they believe. And yet, I don't know about you, I find countless people who would say they believe something and that when push comes to shove, it seems like the heart overrides. I mean, most recently in January, we saw people who said that they were all for democracy and freedom storm the capital of democracy and freedom. You see, what we, what we nurture in our hearts affects what we do with our lives. It affects the choices that we make. The heart is the very center. It is the compass that determines everything that we do. What we nurture in our heart matters. And as we've been talking about throughout this series, we are in a battle, a battle for minds, a battle for hearts, a battle for souls. And so we have to attend to matters of the heart. And what Paul tells us is he tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. That we are to have the breastplate of righteousness firmly in place. Now again, Paul was probably writing his letter to the church in Ephesus as he was in under house arrest, where he would have been chained to a Roman soldier who was responsible for for watching him 24-7. And so it was probably the Roman armor that he had in mind when he was drafting up this image. And, And what we know about Roman armor is that they did indeed have a breastplate. And it was actually one of the most advanced forms of armor that was found in the ancient world. It was known as the lorica segmenta, which means it's segmented armor. And what it was, was it looked like This, it was these heavy plates of metal that were bound together underneath by leather straps. And and although it was heavy and it could withstand incredible amounts of pressure and and blows, what it also was is it was very flexible. Each one of these segments can can move and flex as a soldier needs to, both in the shoulders and in their torso. They would go into battle looking like these armadillos, but they were impervious to many of the attacks of their enemy because they had the right armor on, and the breastplate protected the most vital organs, not least of which was the heart. And what Paul is saying is he's saying for us, our breastplate is righteousness. That's what protects our heart. Now again, that sounds like a really religious word, like righteousness. What what, what does that actually mean? Why why does righteousness matter? Well, righteousness is something that we need to recognize that had a, a variety of different connotations and meanings. Sometimes in the ancient world, righteousness was used in law courts. And it was to talk about how you could stand before a judge and know that you were innocent, that you were totally righteous. You were in right standing with the court. But it also had a relational dimension. That to be righteous in a relationship meant that you're in right relationship with the person uh, that you're relating to. The person that you have a relationship with. And Paul's saying both those meanings need to be in view here. 
when we think about righteousness serving as a, bless, uh, as, a, as a breastplate because of the fact that the human heart is indeed deceitful. The human heart is never actually satisfied. That, our, that what we are constantly trying to do as people is we're constantly trying to justify our existence. To prove our righteousness. And we do that in a variety of different ways. We try to justify our existence through things like work or through things like relationships or things like our, our prestige or the respect that we earn or so on and so forth. There's countless different ways in which we try to, to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. But the problem is, is that none of them actually satisfy Ultimately, what we're doing in every kind of relationship and every pursuit that we, that we run after as human beings is we're trying to look for the thing that is ultimately going to justify who we are. It's going to give us a sense of self, self-worth and, and self-identity. That's going to give us the kind of love that we're so longing to receive, the kind of respect that we so desperately desire. And we look to all these things in kind of a cost-benefit analysis. So for example, if I find someone beautiful, someone attractive, they talk to me just the right way, they give me just the right kind of grips, I think it's time to ask them out for Valentine's Day. Or we go to our jobs thinking that if I just have this right job, then, then I am somebody. I'm going to get the right pay. I'm going to have the right respect. I'm going to be able to advance in the right ways. And people are going to look at me as if I am someone. Or we pursue fame. And in the thought that if more people know me, more people like me, then I am someone. I've finally arrived. But at the end of the day, deep down, we know that none of these things ultimately satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. Our hearts are insatiable. Because even when we get that dream job, there's always somebody who has more than we do, isn't there? Even when we get that dream job, you know, my boss, he could still be giving me just a little bit more respect. He could still be giving me a little bit more pain, so you, uh, a little bit more pay. So you know what? I'm going to go find another position. Or we enter into those relationships with the moment that person isn't meeting my needs, the moment that person isn't living up to their end of this relationship, we are done and I'm moving on. You see, the reality is, although we think these things are going to satisfy us at our core, we are all spiritual and emotional vampires. And not in the cute romantic twilight sense of the term. I'm talking about in the scary monster sense of the term. What we do is we move through this world sucking it dry out of a desperate desire to fill the hole that lies at the center of who we are. None of these things ultimately satisfy and yet we lie to ourselves and fall into the temptation that if we just had this person, we just had this position, we just had this possession, that somehow would satisfy the hunger, but it doesn't. Doesn't. Paul says that the only way that we can possibly be satisfied is to have righteousness as our breastplate, righteousness protecting our heart because all these other things, these relationships, positions, possessions, whatever they might be, are simply ways that we're trying to cover over the deepest shame and longings of our hearts. He says you need something to protect and transform your hearts. The answer that he gives is he says it's righteousness. It's a right relationship with the God who loves you. 
Love how St. Augustine puts it. He says, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find their rest in thee. But in loving me, you made me lovable. Loving me, you made me lovable. Human love finds what's lovable and then loves it. That's how we as human beings operate, right? We find what's lovable and then we love it. But that's not the way it works with God. God's love doesn't find what's lovable. God's love creates what's lovable. God enters into this world and looks at us and all of our brokenness and calls us lovely. He doesn't need us to fulfill him. He doesn't need us to fill up some deep longing at the center of his being. No, he has everything. He's absolutely perfect, which means that he is the one who is totally free to love unconditionally. No terms, no expectations. He just pours out his love, even on people who don't deserve it. He gives his love to a world that when we look at it honestly, is filled with brokenness and darkness, with things that aren't lovely, with things that are messed up, with people who themselves are train wrecks and emotional and spiritual vampires. And yet God enters in and calls us his own. It's a beautiful mystery of our faith. And yet, over and over and over again, that's what Scripture tells us is true about the love of God. And what's amazing is when you know that, when you know the love that God has for you, when we understand the love that God has for us, it changes everything about our hearts. It transforms us from the inside out. I mean, I want you to listen to these words that come to us from Isaiah chapter 61, speaking about the love of God. Listen to this. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and, the, and, and to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. See, what Isaiah says is it says, God enters into this world and binds up brokenhearted people. He arrays us in beauty and splendor. But then I want you to notice the progression of what happens next. He says, and then they, that's us, the people who've received this kind of love from God, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. What he's saying is he's saying when you understand the love of God, it overflows into a broken world. That when we understand the love that God has for us, we're able to look at a world and all of its brokenness and, and see the love that God has now for it. That we become people who rather than going out into the world to suck it dry, go out into the world to join God in the work of restoring it. Of rebuilding what is ruined of reestablishing places that have been devastated, of bringing light where there is darkness, hope to the hopeless, 
restoration and peace to a world divided. He says, when you understand the love that God has for you, it overflows in love for everyone else. That we finally are free to love unconditionally, to love self-sacrificially, to give ourselves to the work that God has called us to do. This is why I think Isaiah ends with these words of praise. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. For as the soil makes the young plant come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. God's love is an overflowing kind of love. It's a healing kind of love. It transforms our hearts and overflows into our lives so that we become a people who reflect that kind of unconditional, sacrificial love for all people. That's the beautiful mystery of the righteousness of God, of what he gives to us. That's why it serves as our breastplate. And it can do truly beautiful and amazing things. Jenny and I started off our relationship not liking each other, not one bit. And yet, as we were together in Christian community, as we spent time as small group, uh, in small group together, as we served side by side, we started to actually learn what it meant to view one another with the eyes of God. And it changed everything about how we approached one another. It led to us falling in love. It led to us promising ourselves to each other in marriage. It's overflowed now as we have started a family with one another. That's the beauty of understanding the love of Jesus is it transforms how we relate to other people. It transforms how we relate to our world. That's not a plug for you to get in a small group, okay? Don't go to a small group because you're looking for a spouse, Go to small group because you desire to encounter the love that Jesus has for you. That's the mysterious, uh, the mysterious beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. Because when we look at Christ, we see a love that surpasses all understanding. I mean, think about the, the ways in which we know that God loves us. The thing that we are told to do. If anyone ever doubts the love that God has for them is to simply look at what Christ has done for us. That he was willing to come into our world to lay down his life for us to make us his own. That's how far his love was willing to go. So that even as he was being nailed to a cross, he could look at the soldiers who were wielding the hammer and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. So that even as he hung suspended between heaven and earth, he could look over his shoulder at a thief, a robber, a murderer who was hanging next to him and say, truly today, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. It was seeing and beholding that kind of love that the Roman soldier who was entrusted with carrying out Jesus' execution, the man who had probably seen hundreds of of crucifixions before was suddenly cut to the heart right through his breastplate as he confessed truly this man was the son of God. For those of us who doubt the love that God has for us, who wonders if we can really be sure we need only look at Jesus for it's there we see the love that surpasses all understanding. 
we see the wondrous love on God, of God on full display for us as his people. And when you know that love, it changes absolutely everything. That's what it means to have the breastplate of righteousness firmly in place is it's every single day. Say, Lord, help me to love others the way you love me. That's the prayer that's at the heart of my marriage to my wife is, Lord, today help me to love her and my kids the way you love me. But that should be the prayer that's at the heart of every Christian. That we wake up and we say, Lord, today help me to love my family the way you love me, to love my friends the way you love me, to love my coworkers the way you love me, my boss the way you love me, my enemies the way you love me, because we understand that that kind of love has the power to heal a broken world. And that though it begins in our hearts, it never stays there. It overflows as we extend that love to a world that so desperately needs it. So as we come to the close of this series, as we reflect on truly what it means to be strong in the Lord, I think it's only right that we conclude in prayer. For Paul says, and after you've put on all these things, bathe it all in prayer. Make your requests known to God, and so we pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that your love is never-ending. And Lord, I pray along with Paul that you would help us to see what is the height and depth and length and breadth of your love for us. That by knowing that love, Lord, we would be people who can go out into the world to love self-sacrificially, to love extravagantly, that you would teach us what it looks like to love unconditionally because that's the love that you have for us. Lord, help us to take up the full armor of God and to stand firm, knowing that in you, we have absolutely everything that we need. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>